Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. In the fall of 1876, a wealthy Englishman arrived in Lincoln County, New Mexico, with a dream. John Tunstall aimed to develop a cattle ranch, store, and bank with two partners, Alexander McSween and John Chisholm. On its own, this likely would have seemed a benign goal to most people, but Tunstall's plan had a problem. To be successful, his outfit would have to go head-to-head against the only existing store in town, which was owned by Lawrence Murphy and James Dolan, and these two men were not the types to take competition lying down. Not only that, but as Josh Taylor from the Wild West Extravaganza podcast explained to me, Tunstall was on record as saying he was going to put these guys out of business. He wanted every, out of every dollar made in Lincoln, he wanted 50 cents in his pocket. In other words, he was pretty aggro about his goals. Murphy and Dolan, the town's existing shopkeeps, did not take kindly to his approach. They saw him as a competitor and they had him killed. That was the beginning of the Lincoln County War. If you know anything about the Wild West, chances are you've heard of the Lincoln County War. Billy the Kid is the best-known participant of the years-long skirmish, and his involvement in it is what led him to being hunted down by one Sheriff Pat Garrett in 1881. Over the next two episodes, I plan to break down the countywide war and the many lives it claimed, while also weaving in how one slim, gun-toting, bilingual ladies' man ended up becoming so damned famous in its aftermath. Elephant in the Room time. Why, yes, I did love the movie Young Guns when I was a wee girl on the cusp of puberty. I cried when Billy the Kid was shot at the end of it. When the sequel came out, I not only went to see it in the theater seven times, but I kept the movie stubs for years. When I was 10 or 11, I ended up in a cast for six weeks because I fell off my top bunk while staring at a poster of Emilio Estevez that I'd bought at a local dime store. Are you really going to kill Billy the Kid? Does a horse piss where she pleases? (laughs) I'm leaving right now and want to know what to look for in case I run into him. I'll come back and tell you. He's a good-looking kid. Away with the women. (laughs) Dresses like a dandy and he's a left-hander. People say he's fond of whistling sad ballads. Hey, I see him. Right there, right there. Don't you see him? (laughs) Is that so now? I am not proud of any of this, mind you. This is simply full disclosure time because I am a journalist first and foremost, and I'm big on sharing any potential conflicts of interest. 
Despite my long-standing interest in this particular subject matter, though, I've always had trouble fully grasping the Lincoln County War specifically. It's complicated and involves money and political figures and a rotating cast of vigilantes that are hard to tease apart. In short, this two-parter has been on my to-do list for quite a while, and I'm happy to finally tackle it. So let's start with Tunstall, the new-to-town Englishman looking to set up shop in Murphy and Dolan's territory. He was young, like surprisingly young. Josh Taylor, whose voice you'll hear throughout this episode helping me tell the story, posted to Instagram recently about how this dude whose death played such a significant role in a storied part of American history was just 24 years old. He'd been born abroad in 1854 and moved to Canada in adulthood, shifting to the U.S. to land in Lincoln County in 1877. When he arrived, the Murphy-Dolan faction had a monopoly on pretty much everything. He was a young guy, very ambitious. He quickly became a competitor. He opened up a store. He opened up a ranch, basically trying to put them out of business. Now, Young Guns and other dramatizations of this conflict would have you believe that Tunstall was a good guy and the Murphy-Dolan duo evil. It's, of course, not that cut and dry. Few things rarely are in life, after all. The common narrative is that it was good guys versus bad guys. In reality, neither side were really angels. Tunstall, for his part, rode into town happy to make waves. He partnered with a guy named Alexander McSween, who was the first-ever lawyer in Lincoln County. McSween had worked for the shopkeep Murphy, who had originally been partners not with Dolan, but with another guy altogether named Emil Fritz. Both Fritz and Murphy had been military officers stationed at Fort Stanton, which was about 10 miles west of the town of Lincoln, because to make things complicated, there's of course a town called Lincoln and also a whole county called Lincoln. These guys were both immigrants. Emil Fritz was German. Murphy was from Ireland. They got off the boat, they joined the military, and for decades they served in the U.S. Army. At some point, Murphy was actually the commander of Fort Stanton, so he was a pretty high-ranking fellow. After both Fritz and Murphy mustered out of the army, they went into business together selling cattle to the soldiers at Fort Stanton. They're crooked, so they're buying stolen cattle for cheap. They're selling it to the army, making a profit. There's a reason this was known as the Wild West, after all. There were rules and even some codified laws in place, but most people who set their minds on bending or breaking those rules-slash-laws generally got away with it. This was true not just for thieving, but for murder, too. Anyway, after some time in business with Murphy, Emil Fritz got sick and moved back to Germany, where he died. Murphy recruited another former soldier, also an Irish immigrant, to replace Fritz as his partner. Dolan, who had been born in 1848, moved to America with his parents when he was about five years old. He served as a Union soldier during the Civil War, after which he began his business relationship with Lawrence Murphy. Their focus was on mercantile and banking, the exact same fields Tunstall would be interested in a few years later. Now, obviously, you mostly hear about Murphy and Dolan when people talk about the history of the Lincoln County War, and with good reason. Emil Fritz was dead before it even started. But it's worth mentioning Fritz nonetheless because his death actually played a weird role in the conflict that led to the war. 
See, the lawyer McSween had done legal work for Fritz and Murphy before Fritz's death. Emil Fritz had a $10,000 insurance policy on his life. He didn't have any kids, though, so there were some legal issues as to who gets this money. McSween got the money. This did not endear McSween to Murphy. As a business partner, he might well have felt entitled to a portion of that insurance policy if Fritz didn't have relatives. Or it might be that Fritz had extended family, nieces and nephews and whatnot, whom Murphy felt should have gotten that money. Whatever the reason, Murphy didn't like that it apparently ended up all in McSween's pocket, so the two had a falling out. That's when John Tunstall comes in. Him and McSween were good friends. They go into a partnership. Now, because they're now partners, Tunstall is inheriting McSween's issues with this whole embezzlement case. In other words, Tunstall is now enemies with Murphy Dolan just through his McSween association. Add to that Tunstall's outspoken intention of putting Murphy Dolan out of business, and, well, you know, there's bad blood all over the place. Now, Murphy Dolan had an important ally on their side. His name was William J. Brady, and he held the important position of Lincoln County Sheriff. Brady wasn't just buddies with Murphy Dolan. It seems fair to say he was straight up in their pocket, given that he lived on a ranch he was able to buy because he got a loan from their bank. Remember what I said about conflicts of interest? This would qualify. Brady was older than most of the players we've talked about thus far. He was born in 1829 in Ireland, where he stayed into adulthood. In fact, he became the de facto head of the household when his father died in 1846, which was a terrible time in Ireland thanks to the Great Famine, also called the Great Hunger, which plagued Ireland the latter half of the 1840s. Brady had some seven siblings, all living on a seven-acre farm, who struggled mightily during the famine. After years of trying to advocate for changes to the laws governing tenant farming in Ireland, he hopped a ship and headed to the United States to start a new life. That was around 1851, when Brady would have been in his early 20s. Like Murphy and Dolan, Brady served in the military, including a stint as a Union soldier during the Civil War. He'd been stationed in the New Mexico Territory to help protect it from Confederates heading over from Texas to invade the region. Now, he sounded like a fairly stand-up guy for much of his life, and I'm not sure if him backing Murphy Dolan necessarily negates this. Like Josh said, there were no angels in this scenario, and he might have legitimately thought they were more in the right than were Tunstall and McSween. Or maybe he was a bought-and-paid-for politician. Chances are the truth lies somewhere in the middle, but the result of his allyship is undeniable. He helped Murphy and Dolan by seizing the store that Tunstall had opened up in Lincoln County. The Murphy-Dolan faction seizes it with Sheriff Brady backing them, right? Then they go to the Tunstall Ranch and seize their livestock. Now in the backdrop of all this drama, there are, of course, outlaws. One is a crew called the Jesse Evans Gang, headed by, you guessed it, a guy named Jesse Evans. According to Robert M. Utley's book, Billy the Kid, A Short and Violent Life, Evans was, quote, of medium stature and slight build with gray eyes and light hair and complexion. He pursued his calling with boldness, arrogance, rapacity, callousness toward his victims, and contempt for anyone who interfered or even protested, including the law. 
Yet he also had an air of relaxed insolence and wry wit that some thought charming, end quote. And he had a bit of a reputation. Jesse Evans, prominent outlaw in the area, he was the main guy that was still in the cattle that they were selling to the army. That they refers to the Murphy-Dolan faction. So Murphy and Dolan would basically hire Jesse Evans and his gang to steal cattle, then turn around and sell that stolen cattle to soldiers at Fort Stanton. One member of Evans' gang was a then scrawny, quiet kid who went by a few names. His birth name was believed to be Henry McCarty, but he'd eventually go down in history under a much more famous nickname. While there was always a rift between John Tunstall and the duo of Lawrence Murphy and Jimmy Dolan, it was in February of 1878 that things really came to a head. That's when members of Sheriff Brady's posse managed to seize Tunstall's stuff. Now, how this came about goes back to that previous partner, Emil Fritz, the one who had been Murphy's partner before Dolan was. McSween, the lawyer, if you remember, didn't disperse Fritz's life insurance policy in a way that Murphy thought was legitimate, and so Murphy managed to get a court order to seize all of McSween's assets. Because McSween and Tunstall were business partners at this time, Tunstall's property was swept up in that court order. Eventually, this court case would be dismissed, but the damage was already done. Sheriff Brady formed a posse, seized Tunstall's store and ranch, and the two sides were both righteously pissed off at each other. Well, let me add one caveat. Actually, Murphy kind of slips out of the picture around this time because of health issues. Remember, all of this is unfolding over weeks and months, and some of the quarter-turn developments involve outside players. So there's rarely a straight line from point A in this conflict to point B. Young Guns the movie keeps Murphy as the main character throughout the Lincoln County War, but as Josh explained, he actually faded from the story around the seizure time. Anyway. Dolan and his bunch, they got a really cool name, The House. As in, The House Always Wins. They got a lot of muscle. They got this guy, Jesse Evans, I told you about. They've got the sheriff in their pocket. There's another outlaw named John Kinney. They've got him and his men in their pocket. There's these guys, really cool name called the Seven Rivers Warriors. Got them in their pocket, too. Tunstall saw this and decided he needed protection as well. The kid, formerly known as Henry McCarty, had by this point fallen out with Jesse Evans and had started using a different name, William H. Bonney, also known as Billy the Kid. Just a young kid, rudderless, seems to be good with a gun. Guys like him, he, he liked to have a good time. He liked to sing, he liked to dance. He did not drink alcohol, but he loved the ladies. So anytime there was a dance going on, anything like that, he was there hanging out with guys like George Coe, Charlie Bowdry, Josiah Doc Scurlock. All these guys are hanging out, palling around together. And they're mostly honest guys. They're tough. They'll steal a cow every now and then. Everybody did back in those days. But they're not constantly just dodging the law. If there had been a who's who of Wild West outlaws back in the day, most of these names would have made the list. Now, Tunstall hired Billy the Kid, but it wasn't a mentor-mentee type relationship as it's often depicted in fictionalized versions of these events. It was a very short-lived employment just for a couple of months. There's not any documentation really showing that they were very close. And there is some documentation from this time period. So if the two were super close, there's a decent chance that would have been noted somewhere. 
What is noted is how uneasy Tunstall was starting to feel about the whole situation. He clearly didn't feel safe. He actually wrote about the muscle he was hiring in letters back home to his family that he needed hired guns on his side because of the trouble that was coming. The trouble hit February 18th, 1878. This was after the court order to seize McSween slash Tunstall's assets, but before that court case was ultimately dismissed. Sheriff Brady gathered a posse and showed up at Tunstall's ranch. Several ranch hands were there already, including Dick Brewer, Billy the Kid, John Middleton, Henry Newton Brown, Robert Weidman, and Fred Waite. To bring this back to Young Guns, by the way, I'll mention that most of these men weren't depicted in the movie, outside of Billy, of course, and also Dick Brewer, who is portrayed by Charlie Sheen. Most of the characters in the film were based on real people, but because this was an ever-rotating cast of vigilantes, the movie acted as though some of the more interesting players were at this specific showdown when they weren't. You know, dramatic license and whatnot. Another fictionalized portion was this. On this day of confrontation, no one outside of Tunstall's killers actually saw him die. In Young Guns, the Tunstall character, who, by the way, was 50 years old when he portrayed the 24-year-old in question, died in front of his ranch hands, which made for a dramatic scene. It also made the motivation for those ranch hands easy to digest and understand, the storyline being that they witnessed the murder of their employer-slash-friend and naturally wanted vengeance. The truth, once again, is muddier than that. It goes something like this. Sheriff Brady, who had already been at odds with Tunstall multiple times, accosted him and his hired men as Tunstall aimed to deliver a small herd of horses to customers. Brady wasn't supposed to confiscate these horses. He literally assured Tunstall himself that he wouldn't do that. But on Tunstall's way to deliver said horses, he was stopped by Jesse Evans, who was known to have been hired by Brady, and Evans moved to seize these horses. Everybody hauls ass. Tunstall was a little too slow in hauling ass. So the hired hands ran ahead. They fled. But Tunstall was caught. The next thing his hired hands knew, he was dead. His killers, which included a guy named Buck Morton, claimed they only killed Tunstall because they had no other choice. The guys that killed him say he went for a gun, right? It's generally considered he surrendered to him, put his hands up, and they killed him. They even arranged his body and his horse's body in a weird way so they looked like they were sleeping together. Crazy stuff. It's hard to understand, but it was considered a very insulting gesture, right? In a climate where honor and so-called manliness meant a whole hell of a lot, this positioning of the body and the horse together was just salt in the wound. And despite Billy the Kid not being that emotionally close with Tunstall, his employer's death apparently really upset him. That part is in fiction. As Utley wrote, quote, The slaying of John Henry Tunstall profoundly affected Billy Bonnie. Frank Coe recorded a revealing scene in a back room of the Tunstall store as the dead man's body was laid out on a table for embalming. Kid walked up, related Co, looked at him and said, I'll get some of them before I die, and turned away, end quote. Billy's behavior in the wake of Tunstall's killing changed, too. He seemed emboldened. Before this, most descriptions of him were pretty milquetoast. Like, he was well-liked, he was good with a gun, but he wasn't a leader. 
And in fairness, he didn't quite rise to that level after Tunstall's death either, but he was more of a presence, more forceful. Utley wrote, quote, Billy's actions in the few days following the killing betrayed the depth of his feeling. No longer was he the unobtrusive bystander. Suddenly he displayed a boldness, a truculence, and an initiative that made him one of the more conspicuous of the men operating out of the McSween house during the cold February days after the murder. Although still a follower, he took the first steps toward leadership, end quote. That's a common misconception. He's a young guy, he's capable, he's game to fight, but he, he was not a leader. Tunstall's death affected more than just Billy. Most of the ranch hands who had been with him the day he died were just as outraged. They did not believe the tale that Tunstall had gone for a gun, in part because that was a really common defense back in this era. Someone would get shot with no surviving witnesses, and the person who did the shooting would claim self-defense. It made it tough to argue because no one aside from the shooter actually saw what happened. Absent solid evidence, people basically believed the version of the tale they wanted to believe. Tunstall's supporters chose to believe he was murdered in cold blood, so they formed a group to avenge his death, the Lincoln County Regulators. In the wake of John Tunstall's death, his supporters formed a posse called the Lincoln County Regulators, Josh Taylor of the Wild West Extravaganza podcast. This did not exist when Tunstall was still alive, okay? This is a group that came up after his death. They did come up to avenge his death. The initial leader of this group was Dick Brewer. He was about 28 years old at the time, a failed farmer. He had previously worked for Lawrence Murphy, but at some point that relationship soured. By the time Tunstall was killed, he was one of the doomed man's hired hands. The regulators weren't just some ragtag makeshift group. They were actually a deputized posse formed for the explicit purpose of bringing Tunstall's killers to justice. The regulators numbered anywhere from 12 people to upwards of 60 people. The the number fluctuated wildly depending on what, what exactly they were doing. There was a large Hispanic element of the regulators. The Hispanic families and ranchers in the area were not fans of the Dolan faction whatsoever. So they tended to side with these guys. They were going after the house, right? Dick Brewer had already had run-ins with the house, Jimmy Dolan's hired guns, specifically Jesse Evans, that guy whose gang Billy the Kid had run with early in his outlaw days. Evans and another associate had stolen some horses that Brewer owned with Tunstall around 1877, and Brewer had formed a posse that persuaded Sheriff William Brady to help them capture Evans and his horse thief crew. Brewer had even served as foreman of the grand jury that helped secure indictments against the thieves for larceny. It's worth noting, by the way, that Evans and his gang escaped from jail after this arrest. That could be because they were allies of Sheriff Brady's, as previously mentioned. But you'll also hear as we delve into Billy's story deeper next episode, jails of this time and place weren't exactly what one would call, I don't know, secure. Unlike Billy, Brewer was a natural leader. He was older than some of the other regulators, which surely helped. But he'd been known even while young as being an exceptionally mature fellow. Some of the better-known regulator members of the time were Billy, of course, 
Josiah Doc Skurlock and Jose Chavez y Chavez, though like Josh said, there were people moving in and out of this group on the regular. Anyway, in early March 1878, the regulators tracked down Buck Morton, the leader of the group that had killed Tunstall, as well as two believed accomplices. The supposed plan was to turn the men into the law to face justice. But as luck would have it, none of the three survived. Once again, nobody knows if that actually happened. All three guys ended up dead, okay? The regulators claimed that they tried to escape. Either way, these guys ended up dead the same way Tunstall ended up dead. Nobody knows nothing. Nobody's saying nothing. After this, the regulators decided that Sheriff Brady should be the next to go. In fairness, Brady kind of had developed a bad habit of poking really murderous bears. At one point, Utley wrote that Brady had beaten George Coe and Charlie Browdry, two regulators, and Brady supposedly cursed and abused Billy and Frank Waite, holding them for 30 hours without cause and then refusing to give back their firearms when he finally released them. This had pissed off the regulators, who spent much of March 1878 quietly devising a plot to assassinate the sheriff. Despite the obvious animosity between the regulators and the sheriff, this was still a bold-ass move. That's a pretty big step, right? They're deputized themselves, and now they're going to murder an actual duly elected sheriff. I don't know if it was just cutting the head off of the snake. The night before their planned ambush, on the last day of March, six regulators hid behind Tunstall's former store and patiently awaited sunrise. Around 9 a.m. the next morning, Sheriff Brady and a few deputies finally walked down the street from the Dolan store. As Utley wrote, quote, When the lawmen drew opposite the Tunstall Corral, the concealed gunmen rose from behind the wall, leveled their Winchesters, and opened a rapid fire. A storm of bullets swept the street, striking down Brady and behind him, George Hinman. At least a dozen bullets ripped through the sheriff, end quote. It was tough surviving even a single gunshot wound back in the Sierra, what with the discovery of antibiotics still several decades off, meaning that wounds we'd probably survive today proved fatal thanks to infection back in the 19th century. But the regulators had unleashed so many bullets into Brady that he fell dead on the spot. Billy and French both waited a moment, then ran to hover over Brady's body, apparently intent on stealing his rifle possibly to make up for the gun that Brady hadn't returned when he detained Billy those 30 hours I mentioned earlier. Regardless, it ended up being a nearly fatal decision because while Billy picked up the rifle, another man opened fire. A bullet tore through Billy's thigh, exiting and then re-entering French's thigh too. French got the worst of it, but both managed to survive, though they dropped the rifle that had nearly cost them their lives. A few days after that, they're hiding low at a place called Blazer's Mill. By sheer coincidence, the regulators ran into a man at this mill called Andrew Roberts, nicknamed Buckshot, because he'd once taken Buckshot to his arm, which left him unable to lift one of his arms above shoulder level. They actually had an indictment for Roberts. Remember, they had been officially deputized and assigned legit law enforcement work, Though anyone paying attention at this point would have recognized they probably had forfeited their law enforcement duties when they, you know, murdered a sheriff in cold blood. Regardless, the regulators spotted this buckshot Roberts and decided 
they should take him in. Buckshot Roberts really didn't want anything to do with this war. Matter of fact, he was on his way out of the territory when he had the misfortune of running into these guys there at Blazer's Mill. He was wildly outnumbered. Something like 14 regulators to his lone little old self. The regulators told him to surrender, but Roberts was like, nah, I know what's going to happen here. Even if I surrender peacefully, you're going to claim I was reaching for my gun and shoot me dead anyway. He decided to fight it out rather than surrender to be slaughtered. In later testimony, regulator George Coe recalled Roberts as being admirably calm and collected as he faced certain death. Coe said, quote, I begged him to surrender, but the answer was no, no, no. I think he was the bravest man I ever met, not a bit excited, knowing, too, that his life was in his hands, end quote. Dick Brewer, the regulator's leader, grew impatient after a good half hour of talking in circles. It was clear Roberts wasn't going to surrender. Brewer and a few of his men stormed toward Roberts, who fired and hit Charlie Bowdry's belt buckle, off of which the bullet ricocheted into one of Coe's hands. Bowdry fired too and landed a bullet in Roberts' stomach. It was a fatal wound, but not immediately so, allowing Roberts to continue firing. He hit one guy in the chest, the bullet lodging in his lung. Another guy was hit in the leg. Brewer could have backed off at this point. He had to have known that Roberts was likely going to die from his gunshot wound anyway, but it seems his pride got in the way. First, he fumed that he was going to set fire to the building to finish Roberts off. Then, having been talked out of that by the owner of said building, he instead positioned himself behind some logs and opened fire on Roberts. He missed, but the smoke of his gunfire gave away his location and Roberts shot Brewer in the left eye. He died immediately. The rest of the regulators fled, with Roberts dying soon after. And the shit was really about to hit the fan. They've already killed Sheriff Brady. Now they've killed Buckshot Roberts. They are no longer deputized anymore. Now they are wanted men. About two weeks after Roberts' death, several of the regulators were officially indicted for the murder of Sheriff Brady. Billy the Kid among them. Despite them losing their deputization, though, the group didn't disband. Another guy named Frank McNabb stepped up to take Brewer's place as the regulator's leader. Before turning vigilante, McNabb held the interesting job title Cattle Detective. I have no idea what that means. To be clear, these guys roamed without really having to worry about getting arrested at every turn. The various legal entities were so piecemeal at the time that while there were indictments for some of the men, they also had other lawmen on their sides, like justices of the peace. So even after the indictment, McNabb actually managed to land a gig as a deputy constable, thanks to essentially a local judge in San Patricio, a largely Hispanic community where the regulators were adored. I mean, this time and place was considered lawless for good reason. You could kill someone and really not get arrested for it if the right people saw fit to look the other way. And if you did get arrested, your allies could easily help you escape jail. That said, you were never safe either. On April 29th, a group of regulators took a rest while riding near a ranch and found themselves ambushed. McNabb, the still new leader, was among those shot and killed. 
Josiah Doc Skurlock ended up taking over as the third regulator leader, a position that at this point had to have felt like a death sentence. Doc, very tough guy. He rode for John Chisholm as a cowboy, possibly had spent time in Mexico. The story goes that he got into a gunfight in Mexico, took a bullet in the face. That's why he had a big mustache for the rest of his life. Kind of hide that. Very capable guy, survived several engagements with the Apache. With Doc as their leader, the regulators headed toward the climax of the so-called Lincoln County War. It all culminates July 15th, 1878, with what's known as the Battle of Lincoln. It wasn't a single-day battle, to be clear. This thing lasted for five grueling days. A group of 50 or 60 regulators made their way into Lincoln. Several climbed atop McSween's house and the roof of a nearby store and opened fire at anyone who approached. Jimmy Dolan of the former Murphy-Dolan faction was nearby. Dolan recruited some men and both sides began popping shots at each other. People nearby were naturally terrified to leave their houses, so the setup was essentially holding the whole town hostage. A few days into things, the army showed up, though the army actually didn't have legal authority to get involved, thanks to the Posse Comitatus Act of 1878, which removed the military from civil law enforcement. The idea was to temper federal military abuses that had cropped up during the post-Civil War Reconstruction era. So while the army arrived in Lincoln, the idea wasn't to get involved, but rather to hopefully calm things down simply with the army's presence. But that's not what happened. To this day, a lot of people blame a guy named Colonel Dudley for intensifying what happened. I tend to sympathize with the man. You had two sides shooting at each other. I mean, two big groups shooting shooting up a town, right? He had to do something. So he hauled out some guns and even a cannon and trained those weapons on the regulators. That prompted quite a few of them to flee, but not all of them. A small group remained that included Alexander McSween, whose house was at the heart of the five-day battle. Billy the Kid stayed too. At this point, he does kind of take charge. He urged everyone to make a run for it. They leave out of the house, guns blazing. Some of them don't make it. Several regulators died, as did McSween, because he had been the last surviving leader of one of the factions whose fight had started the Lincoln County War, those factions having been Tunstall McSween versus Murphy Dolan. McSween's death was believed to mark the end of the war. This was a development that relieved many people, including the surviving regulators, who at this point were just straight up tired of fighting. So they disbanded. But while the war was over, the story of Billy the Kid still had several more years to go, which is exactly what we'll be exploring in our next episode. To research this story and the next, I read Robert M. Utley's Billy the Kid, A Short and Violent Life, and owe so many thanks to Josh Taylor, host of the very fun history podcast, The Wild West Extravaganza. If you haven't checked it out, I encourage it. He knows his stuff and tells the stories in a really fun, relatable way. You'll hear from him some more next episode. 
Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 